Open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 63. And you may be saying, why in the world are we spending so much time in this ancient prophet that was written 2,700 years ago? Listen, the book of Isaiah is only of interest to people who are watching their nation crumble. The book of Isaiah is only of interest to people who are watching God's enemies advancing and encroaching. The book of Isaiah is only of interest to people who are exhausted in the battle against their own personal sin. So, if none of those things apply to you, you may be dismissed now. Oh, that, that's us, isn't it? Well, that's why we opened the Bible. God has something to say to people like us through a people like them. And so we're going to see today some very important things, very important to our culture. Here's the big idea of the message. I want you to see it right now. Our desperation on earth and our longing for heaven compels us to plead with God to rip the sky. We are waiting for the Lord Jesus to come and rule and reign on earth as he is right now in heaven. How many of you are pretty excited about that? How many of you all in favor of that happening in the next five minutes? Raise your hand. Yeah. All right. So the question is, what are we going to do until he rips the sky? Well, if you are a person who is experiencing any kind of frustration, any kind of disappointment, any kind of desperation because of your current experience on earth, maybe it's as simple as you are a lonely 13-year-old girl wondering if anybody's ever going to notice that you exist. Or maybe you have a terminal illness and you have yet days to live. There is a universal desperation for human beings because we live on planet earth and it's broken. And for those of us who are in covenant relationship with Jesus, we are longing for a preferred future that the Bible calls heaven. The last few chapters of Isaiah give us the best picture of what heaven is going to be like in all of the Bible. You say, I thought that was in Revelation. Revelation is a commentary on the last few chapters of Isaiah. So, if you have a longing for heaven, get me out of here. The question is, what are we going to do until he rips the sky? We are going to plead with God to do something right here and right now so that we can experience a bit of heaven on earth. All in favor of that? Yeah, let's learn something about that. Let's pick up the story. I want to give you five things that we must do until God rips the sky. The first one is this. We will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. Isaiah 63, let's pick it up in verse 7. Isaiah says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness of the house of the Lord that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. It's not news to you. God loves you. God loves the whole world. The Bible is filled with assurances 
of God's love. What is so amazing about that verse is where it falls in redemptive history. If you've been following along in the book of Isaiah, you know that God's people have rebelled. They've returned their back on them. There was nothing lovable about these people. And yet, the prophet Isaiah says, wait, wait, wait. When I'm desperate, when things are disappointing, when we are at our worst, when we are exhausted with our sin, when we think God is about fed up with us, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. You know, in a season like we've been in, 2020, 2021, have you noticed how good we've become at recounting all of the miserable parts of, this, of these last 15, 16 months? Have you gotten pretty good at that? I mean, can you go down a list of complaints that you have about how just awful it's been? And even this week, even in our staff, I mean, prayer requests flying back and forth. We've got parents who are sick. We've got, um, you know, car crashes. We've got, you know, pipes busting and just all kinds of stuff. And I'm sure you've got a list like that. What should you do when that list is long? You need to do what verse 7 says. Make a list. Recount one by one the steadfast love of the Lord. Notice, his, his, his goodness, his great goodness, his, his compassion, and his love for somebody as unlovable as you. Uh, many of you know that I've spent the last 13 days, since I saw you here, I've been in Oklahoma. And if you've been following the news, this week, Oklahoma, Texas experienced this horrible winter storm, actually two of them that came by. And so I was there with my mom, taking care of mom at the house. And, and um, I, I know those of you that live in the north mock people that live in the south when it snows. I get it, okay? But listen, it would be the equivalent of a 110 degree heat wave coming to Granger, Indiana for two weeks, okay? And you would be freaking out and the people in Oklahoma and Texas are like, which I was probably, you should be enjoying that. No. See, we, we, we aren't designed to live like that down there in Oklahoma and Texas. And so electricity's off and the power's out. I found myself there caring for my mom, wondering when the power was going to go out and what was going to happen if, if that, how was I going to care for her if, if, if that happened. And, and, and I found myself recounting just the goodness of the Lord to give me something as simple as a light switch that worked. And a temperature above 32 degrees and running water and some food. It's amazing how we take for granted the love, the compassion, and the goodness of the Lord until He begins to remove some of those things. Until He rips the sky, recount the steadfast love of the Lord because we don't deserve any of it. While I was in Oklahoma, I had the privilege of preaching last Sunday at my home church. And it was right before the winter storm came in. And, and I mean, I walked in and it was windy and cold. When I walked out, it was a blizzard and I, I could barely get home in my mom's rear wheel drive Chrysler 300, uh, which is not designed to drive on icy roads. And, and so I'm, I'm, you know, making it home there. But it was such a privilege to preach at the church where I first heard the gospel. 
and I was first taught to share the gospel, where I first learned to read the Bible and love the Bible. And I got up in front of that congregation and, and I told them, I'm, I'm like, there is a church in Granger, Indiana, because someone decided to put a church in Lawton, Oklahoma. And I said, there was a 14-year-old kid running around here at some point. And I, I said, if you knew me when I was 14 years old, I apologize. Um, you know, whatever I did to you, let, you know, come back. I will repay it fourfold. Whatever I need to do to, to make that relationship right. But, but I, I remember, I told them the story. I remember the first time I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I was at an overnight boys' seventh grade camp out. And... Uh, the youth pastor, his name was Mike Teal. He's now the senior pastor of that church still after 40 years. He's been our family pastor for that many years. And I remember him opening the Bible and just sharing the gospel. And for the first time, I realized I was in trouble because I wasn't lovable to God and God loved me anyway. And I heard the story of the cross. And, and even last week, I had the, the privilege of just recounting the steadfast love of the Lord to give me a church and to give me a Bible and give me the gospel. Listen, for all the things that you wish the Lord would do in your life, don't overlook the things He's already done. Out of compassion, you don't deserve any of it. So when you find yourself in desperate situations, longing for heaven, plead with God, recount the steadfast love of the Lord. Here's the second thing. We will lament the condition of the people of the Lord. Now, skip down a little bit here to verse 10, Isaiah 63, verse 10. We've just heard about how good God's been to them. He's been compassionate and gracious. But verse 10 says this, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. This gracious, compassionate, good, and loving God turned his fury toward them in discipline and in anger. God is grieved when his children don't have enough sense to love him back when they know how much they've been loved by God. Look down at verse 15. There's a prayer that goes up. This is the plea that Isaiah makes. Verse 15 says, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation where, your zeal, uh, where are your zeal and your might. The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. It says, look down and see. What do you think that God sees when he looks down? Answer? Everything. The little things that you keep secret and hide, teenagers, the things that you keep from your parents and stuff hidden away in your closet and under your mattress and stuff. God, gets, God sees that. Look down. I don't know about you, but when, when I watch the news, I don't just watch the news. I kind of pray the news. I'm like, Lord, did you see that? Lord, look at what they're doing now. Lord, come, change that. Re bring redemption. God, forgive, be gracious, and restore justice. That's kind of the way I have learned to watch the news. I, I can remember 
you know, like most of you as a, a dumpy teenage kid in the back seat and your mom and dad are driving down the car and you're goofing off doing something bad in the back seat and, some, and, and your parents will make the statement. You, you remember the statement? Don't make me. Don't make me come back there. You ever heard that? Have you heard that from your parents, right? Well, th- that's probably what God is sensing when he looks. Don't, don't make me come down. But actually, we would like you to come down here, Lord, and fix this because it's broken. And it mentions heaven. See verse 15? It says, look down from heaven. How much do you think about heaven? Probably the older you get, the more you think about heaven. I'm having some good conversations with my mom about heaven. We need to think about heaven before the final days. We need to contemplate, number one, am I going there? How do I get there? What qualifies me for heaven? And what is heaven? We're going to talk more about heaven next time we meet, but so often we think of heaven being something way up there, and I'm going to leave earth and one day go to heaven. Do you know when Scripture speaks of heaven, it talks more about heaven coming down than it, us, than it talks about us going up? Again, we'll, we'll talk more about that, but heaven is a holy place. It is where God is most fully known. It's a beautiful place, according to this verse. If, if you have any sense in your human heart that there's got to be something better than earth, God put that there. It's a longing for heaven. And so the prophet Isaiah says, look down from heaven and see. Verse 16 says, for you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer. From of old is his name. God is a father who has prodigal children. That, that may be comforting to some of you who have prodigal ch- children who have rebelled and have strayed from things that you taught them. Did you know that God sympathizes with that? Because all of God's children are prodigals? Now, I'm so glad he didn't just say he's a father. It went on to say he's a redeemer. God is a father who goes after his prodigal children and redeems them and brings them back. What was the condition of these children? Well, first of all, um, their hearts had become hard. Sin hardens our heart. Look at verse 17. Oh Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Now, it's interesting language there. It almost appears like they're blaming God for their wandering. When you stray so far from God and your heart is so hard, you you're so deceitful that you think that somehow God caused you to do that. And so we see that it's not God that makes them wonder. Actually, the answer to the question is, why do you make us wonder? Why, or why do you harden our hearts? Why do we not fear you? The answer was back up in verse 10. Because you rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. You're the one that strayed. God is now coming after us. So sin hardens your heart. Sin tramples your worship. Look at verse 18. 
your holy people held possession for a little while. Remember the promised land? Joshua brought them in there and they held possession for a little while, but then they rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. And our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary, the meeting place of God, had been overrun, torn down, invaded, burned by their adversaries. That's what happens when you treat the meeting place of God with trivial respect. I would say to those of you that claim to know the Lord, to make sure you don't neglect the meeting place with God. Take advantage of the meeting place with God while you can. Now, the meeting place, the sanctuary, this is not a sanctuary. Sometimes we find ourselves using the word sanctuary. This is not a sanctuary. Uh, Sanctuary was a place where God dwelt. God dwells here, but God dwells everywhere. God dwells where you are. Any place can be a meeting place with God. But when your heart is hard and you go after idols, your worship is trampled by a thousand other things that capture your attention. So sin tramples our worship. And then he says, sin destroys your identity, makes you just like everybody else. Look at verse 19. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. I'm convinced the greatest problem in the church is the lack of distinction our lives have with those who claim no allegiance to Christ. Do you name the name of Christ? Then depart from sin. Purify yourself. Obey God. I know that when I was a young person, I love these young people down here on the front row. It was such a a battle just just to blend in with everybody else, to adopt the values of the world and whatever everybody else was listening to and whatever language everybody else was using and, and whatever appetites everybody else had and whatever dating practices everybody else had, we just blend in because we don't, we don't want to swim upstream. We don't want to look different. Your identity in Christ compels you to live a distinctly different life from the world. And when you do not, you become like the people that God has never ruled. And if you have no desire to live a distinctly Christian life, would you please stop telling people you are a Christian? You are blurring the lines. If you're like me, your heart aches by so many Christian celebrities who are being exposed to have double lives and you're wondering, how does that reconcile with what I heard them say and teach? And to realize we cannot be like the world. We must live distinctly different. So we need to lament the condition of the people of the Lord until he rips the sky. Thirdly, until God rips the sky, we will plead for the presence of God of the Lord. Let's go into chapter 64 here. Look at chapter 64. First word of the first verse of chapter 64, let's all say it together. Oh, do not race past the O. 
the O comes from the gut. The O is what puts the exclamation point on our desperation. Oh, it hurts so bad. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, rip the sky, and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Again, he mentions the heavens. Heavens, in the scripture, just simply means that which is elevated. It's up, there, somewhere. The word heaven is mentioned over 550 times in the Bible. It's mentioned in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's very clear there's a distinction between heaven and earth. God created earth as a suitable dwelling place for man until God would recreate it so that heaven and earth would become one. New heavens, new earth, new creation is the hope that we live with. And it was the hope of what Isaiah was exclaiming when he said, oh, oh, that heaven would come to earth. Oh, that God would come down. Oh, that God would fix what is broken on earth. That is our heart's desire, that what's up there would come down here. How many of you uh, were watching when we landed that thing on Mars this week? Did you, did, you, did you notice that? Like we sent a robot or something up there, and like a Jeep or something, and a drill. And, and were you watching this thing? I mean, it took like seven months to shoot this thing up there. And, and uh, you know, they landed the thing successfully, and it's supposed to drill down into the, the surface of Mars and like pick up some sand and like put it in a capsule and lay it on the side. And the plan is like seven years from now, they're going to shoot another rocket to go get that thing and to bring what's up there down here. Is there anybody that thinks that's a great idea? I mean, aren't we trying to keep viruses and things that kill us away from us? And we're like, isn't that like the plot of some alien movie where they take over after it gets here or something? That's a bad idea. But the hope of every believer is that somehow we could get what's up there down here. And if we can get what's in heaven on earth, it would change everything. That's the plea of the believer, that there would be little outbreaks of heaven in little spaces on earth. I like to believe that that's what happens every time we meet here at Gospel City Church. There is an invasion of heaven on earth, an alien invasion of the Holy Spirit where he takes over and changes our perspective on earth. Is that your heart's desire? Or are you, do you, are you just satisfied being an earthling? Just walking around like a robot, just doing what everybody else does. No, the desperate cry of a true believer is what Isaiah prayed. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and that the mountains might quake. What, what kind of mountains is he talking about? He's talking about literal mountains. It's figurative. 
I believe he's talking about mountains of sin, mountains of pride, the fact that so many of us think that everybody else needs to repent, mountains of lust, mountains of addiction, mountains of bitterness and unforgiveness and broken relationship. Mountains represent unmovable objects in Scripture, things that you think can never change in your life. And it's true, they can't until God rips the sky and comes down and in His presence, things change forever. Literally, Isaiah is talking about when God actually came down and did that at the Exodus. We read in the second book of the Bible how He came and He released uh, the children of Israel from bondage and slavery in Egypt. He came down and He's recounting that. There was another time that God came down. We open up to the first few pages of the Bible and we find out that God literally came down in the form of Jesus. That's why we call him Emmanuel, God with us. That prayer was answered when Jesus came. And we look back to it as believers, understanding that God has done everything that needs to be done for us to dwell in his presence. And at the same time, we look forward to the day when God will rip the sky, Jesus will come back, establish his kingdom in a new heaven and a new earth, and we will worship him unhindered. Poor Michael this morning, Micah put him on the spot and asked him to sing in front of the whole world. Michael, one day, you're going to have a better voice than Micah in heaven. You just keep looking forward to it, all right? You, let's keep asking God to rip the sky so Michael can sing. And you too. And you would stop sinning. And you would stop being absorbed by the appetites in the world. That's our prayer. That we would dwell in the presence of the Lord. Look at verse 3. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. He's remembering the exodus there. And then let's look at the fourth thing we must do. Actually, look at verse four. It says, for uh, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Underline the word wait. You see, there, there's some waiting involved until God rips the sky. The entire theme of Isaiah is waiting for God to act. God, how are you going to get us out of here? How are you going to reverse our sin? We got, got, we're, we're waiting for you to, to like change our hearts so we'll stop rebelling against you. We're waiting for your kingdom to come. We're waiting for this servant Savior to come and die on the cross. And now we're on the other side of that. Now we're waiting for him to come and establish his kingdom. Everything is about waiting. And what do we do while we wait? Well, we plead for the presence of the Lord. That verse, verse 4, may sound a little familiar to you. It's, it's actually one of the more famous verses in the Bible because 700 years later, the Apostle Paul was writing to a rebellious, sinful church, the Corinthian church, and he lifted verse 4 and he inserted it in his letter. Paul said it this way. As it is written, by the way, if you ever see these four words in your Bible, as it is written, your immediate question should be to ask, where? 
And then look down in your footnote and some helpful publisher told you where. And if you'll notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 9, it points us back to where this was written, Isaiah chapter 64 verse 4. And Paul says this, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, we misquote this verse so often when we're thinking about heaven. We think about heaven, man, it's just going to be an unimaginable place. No one has ever seen what heaven's going to be like. No one has ever heard. No one can ever imagine what it's going to be so awesome to be with God in heaven. Notice what Paul said next. These things God has revealed to us. He didn't reveal them to Isaiah, but he has revealed them to us through the Spirit. We have seen, we have heard, the heart of man has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him because we have Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfillment of God coming down. We have seen him, we've heard of him, we have his teaching, we have a record of his life and it inspires us to wait actively in obedience until God rips the sky. Here's the fourth thing we have to do until God rips the sky. We will be made righteous only by the grace of the Lord. Back to Isaiah chapter 64. Notice verse 5. It says, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. So, all you have to do to have a personal meeting with God is joyfully work some righteousness. How's that going? All you have to do. Notice the verse continues. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. And our sins we have been in a long time. That sounds like Yoda translated this verse. Our sins we have been a long time. Like, why don't you just like, we have been in our sins a long time. That's the way I would have translated it. I don't know if Yoda's translating Bible. Anyway, it says, and shall we be saved? The question is, it's, a, it's an open-ended question. Here's, here's what he says in the first part of the verse. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, but you were angry because we sinned. Here's the problem. No one has ever joyfully worked righteousness, except one person. We think of righteousness as a gift we offer up to God. Look, God, come and meet with me because, look, I've been on my best behavior this week. I gave a much, bunch of money to the church. I, 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 I didn't cuss as much this week as I did last week. Didn't lust as much this week as it did last week. Surely you come and meet with me because I've been on my best behavior. And we see this righteousness as a gift to God. Righteousness is not a gift that we give to God. Righteousness is a gift we receive from God. That's why he says verse 6, another very famous verse in the Bible. We have all become like one who is unclean. Uh, underline the word all. Or you could just put your name in there. Um, we have all become like one who is unclean and 
all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment or filthy rags, right? Think poopy diaper. How many have ever changed a poopy diaper? How many of you would offer that to someone you loved as a way of getting them to meet with you? That's what God says about your best behavior. All your church attendance, all your prayers, all your money you've given, all your generosity, poopy diaper. We're hopeless. The only hope we have is if God will give us a righteousness by his grace, a substitute righteousness that was earned by his son, Jesus. Not self-made righteousness, but imputed righteousness from the outside in. Verse seven, there's no one who calls upon your name or rouses himself to take hold of you. And that's the sad state of the human heart until God does a work of righteousness and changes us from the inside out. Do you, do you find yourself being roused to come into God's presence? Again, as I was in Oklahoma, and, and so I know something about snow now, like, because I've been living up here for a while, and my fellow Oklahomans, they didn't know that when the weatherman said, the snow is coming and it's gonna be deep and bad, they didn't know they were gonna need a shovel. So I spent two days going to every store in Lawton, Oklahoma, looking for a snow shovel. You have to understand, you don't just browse the shelves at Walmart for a snow shovel. The snow shovel department does not exist at Walmart in Oklahoma. Finally, I found an Ace Hardware store. They had two shovels. I bought one and I told the lady, you ought to charge $1,000 for the other one. And when the snow came, a foot one day, and then we got a day of reprieve, and then a foot the next day, the average snowfall where I live is 3.8 inches annually. We got 27 inches of snow last week. But my driveway was clean. Because <laughs> I roused myself. I heard the warning, it was coming. I, you've got to prepare for this. And that's what he's saying. There's no one who calls upon the name of the Lord. There's no one who rouses himself to take hold. You have hidden your face from us. You have, you have made us melt like a snowman in the hand of our iniquities. Listen, the prayer life of the church is carried by those who believe that God is able to bring heaven down to earth. It, next week, I don't know if you've noticed, I, I think this has caught you off guard. We have a monthly prayer meeting for the membership of Gospel City Church. It happens on Sunday night, next Sunday night, six o'clock. And I gotta tell you, honestly, when, when people kind of start to trickle in, they're like, is anybody gonna rouse themselves? 
Is, is anybody going to take hold of the promise? Is anybody going to call on his name? And I want to invite you to take seriously the prayer meeting of Gospel City Church next week. Listen, it's not intimidating. It's warm. It's wonderful to have people pray for you. You do not have to carry your burdens by yourself. Come and have somebody pray for you. Come and let's lift up to God in desperation our cries for him to rip the sky and get down here and do what he longs to do in and through us. Notice at the end of verse 7 it says, you've made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. They, they were so rebellious. They were so indifferent. They, they didn't care that their nation was crumbling. Their sin was paralyzing them. Can I just, do you see the white space after verse 7? Everybody just look down your Bible. See the white space after verse 7? That's where the Bible should have ended. Just Isaiah 64, 7, last verse in the Bible. And the people melted in the hands of their iniquities. First verse, I'm sorry, first word of verse 8, say it together. But, but now, oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the, our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Here's the last thing we must do. We will trust in the hand of the Lord. Do you understand what he's saying? Verse seven says, we're gonna melt in the hand of our iniquities. Verse eight says, or... We are going to be molded in the hand of the potter. That's your choice. You're either going to melt in your iniquities or you're going to be molded in the hand of a potter. Do you understand the, 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 the imagery there? God is a father, but then it, the imagery is he's a potter and he sees you as clay. And by his grace, he reaches down and he grabs you just a pile of dirt. And do you know what he does? He holds you securely and he begins to shape you and mold you and pretty soon it's beginning to look useful but then do you know what he has to do with the clay before it's useful? You got to stick it in the oven. You got to expose it to fire. Anybody here feel like you're in the fire right now? Don't give up. God is making you into something useful to him. Don't resist the hand of the potter. Look at verse nine. Here's the prayer of somebody who's been given righteousness. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord. Remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our, our pleasant places have come to ruins. And then he asks a question, verse 12. Will you restrain yourself at these things? Oh Lord, are you gonna act? Are you gonna do something about it? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly. And chapter 64 ends with an unanswered question. But we know what the answer is. 
700 years later, God didn't just look down, He came down and demonstrated His steadfast love and compassion and goodness toward people who didn't deserve it a bit. Last Friday night, something happened to me that really rattled me. So I had to make a, a late night trip to Walmart to get some supplies for my mom, storm coming in. And so I realized we were out of some stuff. So I went to Walmart, Lawton, Oklahoma, very diver diverse culture. You, do, you really don't want to go to Walmart at 9.30 on Friday night in Lawton, Oklahoma, but I, I had to go. So I was standing there and, and I, I, I had my list on my phone. So I'm, I'm standing there distancing, masked up. I'm looking at my list and this, this very large man starts to approach me. And I'm feeling a little intimidated. He, he gets right up in my face. And this is what he said. He said, could I ask you if you would attend a Bible study with me at my church this week? And I said, God still speaks. He still has a people in little pockets, in little places when everything looks like it's falling apart and crumbling. In an insignificant place like Lawton, Oklahoma, there's still some 20 year old, I left 35 years ago and there's still a 20 year old there talking to people about Jesus and asking them to lead a Bible study. By the way, I said, I, I would if I still lived here and I wasn't leading my own Bible study at my own church, um, I, I, I would probably do that. It gave me such hope. And it gives me hope that there's people here that will take seriously the prayer of Isaiah 64 and pray and believe with all their heart that until God rips the sky, we're gonna ask him to rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake in the presence of the Lord and change some stuff in our lives. Is there anybody here that's got that kind of hope that would rouse themselves to call upon the name of the Lord? I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. We're out of time. But this is what I want to do real quick. Would you just kind of draw a circle around yourself there? Forget there's anybody else in the room. And I want to walk you through these five things and just in your heart before the Lord Would you recount the steadfast love of the Lord in your life right now? Lord, thank you for my family. Thank you for the grace. Thank you for the Bible that I can hold in my hand. Thank you for the church that you've exposed me to. Thank you for heat. Thank you for whatever money I have. More importantly, thank you for grace, compassion, all of your goodness toward me. I'm really good at counting all the things that I don't have. I'm gonna stop and I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. And then would you lament the condition of the people of the Lord? Don't just lament, confess. Lord, my heart's grown hard toward you. Lord, I, I've become 
just like everybody else who doesn't name your name. God, restore the distinctive holiness in my life. Give me the courage to stand, not just to blend in, not just be like everybody else. And then would you plead for the presence of the Lord? Oh, that you would come down right here, right now. I know there's some things that I will experience only then, only there. But Jesus, you taught me to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, would your will be done in my heart, in my home, in my thought life, in my church, in my city, in my nation. So desperate for you. Rip the sky, come, change the things that are broken. Have you been made righteous by the grace of the Lord? It is the default setting in the human heart to think that I can offer my righteousness as a gift to God. God says, I don't want it, it stinks. The only righteousness he's interested in is the righteousness of his son, Jesus. And if you abide in Christ, his righteousness abides in you. And we approach him, not to offer righteousness, but to receive righteousness. If you've never by faith confessed your need for a substitute righteousness, Stop going through the religious ceremony and the religious motion, trying to generate some form of self-made righteousness. Come to him for grace. And then would you trust the hand of the Lord? You may not think God would want anything to do. You, You may think as a piece of clay, he would just smash you in his hand. Would you? Surrender yourself into the hand of the Lord. Make me, mold me, shape me, change me, and then use me. Lord, I pray that right now you're receiving these prayers from your people. You love us in spite of the fact of how unlovely we are. You've been so compassionate and gracious. Give us far more than what we deserve. And we live in desperate times and we've got a list of complaints. We bring those things to you. We know you see, you look down, you're grieved. We as your people have even rebelled and grieved your spirit. We confess We need you to do a work of practical righteousness in our hearts once we've received your imputed righteousness to to rightly act on that which we have been given. 
So God, help your people to do right, to think right, to live right, so that the world would know we are distinctly different. We've been called by your name. We pray it all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.